Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the Science, Technology, and Society channel on the New Books Network. I'm John Traphagen, an anthropologist and professor in the Department of Religious Studies and the Program in Human Dimensions of Organizations at the University of Texas at Austin. Today, my guest is Dr. Glenn Sauer to talk about his recent book, Points of Contact, Science, Religion, and the Search for Truth, published by Orbis Books in 2020. Professor Sauer, thank you for joining me on the SDS channel. I'm looking forward to discussing your thoughts on this very important topic. Thank you, John. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Great. So I'm going to begin with a little bit of background about Dr. Sauer. Um, He is uh, the Donald J. Ross Senior Chair in Biology and Biochemistry and Professor of Biology at Fairfield University, where he also serves as Associate Dean in the College of Arts and Sciences. Dr. Sauer received his PhD in Biology from the University of South Carolina and was previously an NIH postdoctoral fellow. His research interests include mechanisms of biological mineralization, biochemistry and cellular metabolism of trace metals, programmed cell death, calcium phosphate biomaterials, and of course, the topic today, the relationship between science and religion. We're going to approach this interview maybe a little bit differently from most of the interviews that I do in this podcast. Um, We're certainly going to focus on Dr. Sauer's book. Um, but I also think it's important to point out to the listeners that the perspectives that, that the two of us take on this topic are from different ends of the spectrum. Dr. Sauer is a natural scientist who is a committed Catholic, and I'm a scholar of religion uh, who inhabits space somewhere between agnosticism and atheism with a fairly strong leaning toward the latter. And part of the reason I, I have found um, this book to be so important and interesting is that Dr. Sauer is trying to find common ground for a dialogue between the perspectives of science and at least Abrahamic religions. And um, one issue on which we firmly firmly agree is the tendency of extremists on both sides of the spectrum to disavow any intellectual space for that dialogue to occur. This is neither good for scholarship nor intellectually and socially productive. Um, I think it's safe to say that the you know, political and social climate of the U.S. at least is one in which there is a dire need for a reasoned and open dialogue between scientific and religious perspectives on truth. So I want to begin by, um, you know, saying that we're asking, given that, you know, you're trained as a biologist and also that, as we will discuss later, graduate education in science does not exactly encourage consideration of religious ideas. I'm curious how you became interested in the relationship between religion and science. What motivated you to pursue this line of thinking and write the book? Uh, well, um, yeah, it's an, it's a good question. Um, yeah, it goes back to about, uh, oh my, it's a little over 20 years ago. I was teaching uh, introductory biology, the second semester of introductory biology. Um, and one of the topics that we talk about is, uh, is evolution in that, in that semester. Um, now, during that semester, we had a visitor to campus. Uh, this was at the University of South Carolina, a fellow by the name of uh, Michael Bay. He had just written a book called uh, Darwin's Black Box. He was invited to come to campus and he gave a talk where he basically uh, discussed from his perspective how a biochemical understanding of the mechanisms which operate within, uh, within cells basically uh, refuted uh, Darwin's ideas about evolution. 
And so he gave that address. I didn't actually think too many of my students would have been there, but there was a few there. And so it, it ended up prompting a conversation in my class later that week. Um, and it was really an interesting conversation and covered a lot of topics. But um, uh, one of the students at one point said, I mean, I, I asked them, of what, what do they think about the topics we're covering in evolution um, in this class? And one of my students said that he didn't believe any of it, but he understood why he had to, you know, why he had to get it because uh, he had he was going to get tested on it, and so his eventual grade depended on that. And that uh, start tried to s- sort of startle me in a number of ways. Uh, first of all, um, I found it a little bit uh, perplexing to be a student and have to listen to things you don't, you completely don't agree with, um, just to take the test. Although I think we've all had classes we don't particularly like at one time or another, but yeah. um, but I think we all try, we always try to take something from it. Uh, another reason I um, it disturbed me in a way was because um, first of all I didn't react at all that way. I'm also a Christian. He was he he explained himself as being from a, con- a fundamentalist Christian background. Background. I'm also a Christian, but I don't respond to uh, evolutionary science in that way at all. But secondly, you know, evolution is really uh, the fabric which weaves all of biology together. And if you're not willing to really engage with that thought, my worry is, you know, how good of a biology student will you ever actually be eventually? So um, I don't know uh, for that gentleman, I don't know what ever became of his uh, exploration of biology. Um, but, um, but so that got me thinking about it. Um, you know, years later, um, Michael Behe, uh, who prompted this conversation, was one of the witnesses at the intelligent design trial um, in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Um, and so he had a lot of, uh, a lot of attention that way. And it just sort of made me start paying attention to it. Eventually, uh, when I moved to Fairfield University, uh, my dean at the time uh, encouraged me to develop a course in the area of dialogue between science and religion. Um, and so I developed that course. Um, I wrote a grant to the John Templeton Foundation who promotes that kind of dialogue. Um, that grant was successful. I've been teaching that course pretty much ever since then. Um, and also it expanded into a larger project where these conversations go out into the, uh, the Catholic parishes of the local community in the Diocese of Bridgeport. So that's really where I got involved. That's really interesting. I, I think it's, it's also interesting in the way you describe this, that, you know, this topic is something that I, I have found teaching that um, students bring a great deal to university or college related to these questions of how they perceive of, of their religious beliefs, their, um, you know, the, the, what, what science is and particularly what, um, um, evolutionary theory is. And, and they really kind of come to the campus in some ways often with, you know, very strong notions about this. I, I've had several, you know, I teach in religious studies and, um, one thing is people often misunderstand religious studies and assume that it's a theology department, which it isn't. Uh, but the other thing is that I've had many students over the years, you know, say uh, their their parents told them never take a class in religious studies; it will ruin your faith. And it's it's kind of the same thing in the other direction, you know, in, in a sense that that you know don't do anything that that challenges your faith. And if you get stuck with something that does, just plow through it, and then hopefully you can flush it down the right. toilet later. Right. Uh, 
Yeah, so, I had a I had a parish priest uh, uh, one time leading an adult discussion group, and he actually said, "If you don't ever question your faith, you will eventually lose it." So, I mean, I've sort of taken that to heart, and so I question my faith constantly, um, but I always come around to it over and over again. Yeah, we'll we'll come back to that question I think a little bit later in the interview, and 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 I I agree. I, I think the the need to I think. Healthy skepticism is something that we should always have floating around with us um, because it, it makes us think about the world that we're in. Um, and that kind of, it brings me a little bit to the, the next question I wanted to focus on is, you, you know, one of the, I think, really central themes is that, that you raise is the, the sort of the extremes of the new atheism on the one hand and the religious right on the other hand. Um, but that, you note they have quite a few common tendencies. And I, I really love the way that you uh, got into this, uh, one of the, the sort of central um, points that you make is that one of their common tendencies is a lack of humility and even an arrogance about the perceived or assumed unquestionable truths of their perspectives. And I'd like to actually read two uh, short passages from the um, book that point this out, is, is you talk about writers like uh, the scientist Richard Dawkins and the creationist Dean Kenyon. Um, and as for the creationist, uh, you argue that into relation, in relation to Darwinian evolution, quote, these authors conveniently overlook the fact that Darwin's theory has been tested, retested, and confirmed in numerous scientific disciplines over the last 150 years. And the hubris that they display by rejecting a central tenet of the biological sciences is alienating to almost everyone in the scientific community. It is no wonder that they receive strong pushback from most scientists. And I actually, not, not only did I think this was just beautifully stated, it, it really resonated with me. I, I teach a, a, a class that is um, in a program called Human Dimensions of Organizations. It's for mid-career um, professionals. They come back to uh, study in this program. And... Um, one of the things I talk about, because it's a course on research methods, I talk about what science is, and I talk about the nature of theory. And I use the example of, of um, Darwinian evolution, and I talk about um, gradualism versus punctuated equilibrium to get them to understand that there isn't a question about what's going on at the you know level of natural selection happens. We've observed it. And how many uh, folks just don't seem to be aware that this is something that's yeah. actually been observed yeah. in nature? Yeah. Um, there there's isn't lots really. Of, there's lots of yeah. evidence. <laughs> it's just all over the place, and and there's not much to talk about with that. That's kind of the way the world works. That's a different from question from why it works that way. Um, and so then I think you know you 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 go on you you um, talk about Dawkins and some of the strong atheists and you say um, they have conflated the methodological naturalism of science with their own philosophical commitment to atheism. The result is a form of scientific materialism in which any mention of God or other uh, possibility of non-material reality is automatically rejected without consideration. And um, I, I just really appreciated the way. Uh, in response to these philosophical extremes, you focus on the concept of intellectual humility, which um, you you know clearly say should be the hallmark of of any good form of scholarship, whether it's in the natural sciences, the social sciences, or the humanities. And so, 
Could you talk a bit about what what you mean by this and and why the lack of intellectual humility has become so pronounced in uh, the contemporary discourse on religion and science? The short answer is I'm not so sh- I'm not sure, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but but of course you know as you, as you just suggested um, within our disciplines. Um, we send, we write our papers, we send them out to review, we write grants, we send them out to review, and there's going to be disagreement about our work, and we have to be humble enough to accept the criticisms of others um, as we try to revise and move our research programs forward. So this is just basic to any discipline, um, any academic discipline. But then um, when it comes to science and religion, there's oftentimes a harsher tension there um, and I, I don't know what the ultimate historical origins are. The one that strikes me most prominently in recent history is, um, you know, the, we had the, 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 the September 11th attacks uh, back in 2001 or 2000, 2001. And, um, you know, where we had a, a group of religious fundamentalists that hijacked planes and, you know, reaped destruction in the United States. Um, and, you know, it really showed sort of the, the downside of a fundamentalist sort of attitude. And some writers, in particular Richard Dawkins and a few others, Sam Harris and a few others, their books um, were initially prompted kind of by a pushback against this kind of uh, fundamentalist uh, terrorism in that particular case. Unfortunately, I think they um, they conflated um, this particular group of religious fundamentalism as if this was a trait of all religious believers. Um, and I think a lot of people took offense to that. Um, at the same time, um, on the other side of the coin, um, the intelligent design movement was sort of progressing up through the courts um, at that time, uh, drawing the attention of um, scientists who were viewing this as detrimental to science education. And so there were these two, both sides were sort of engaged in this um, push against um, the other uh, the other area of, of human understanding. Um, and this led to these tensions. And it, it really you know, it really was counterproductive in my view. Um, If you're trying to get somebody to understand science, why antagonize them? (laughs) And if you're trying to, if you're trying to get a better appreciation of the way the world works, um, why insist that um, all the work that these thousands and thousands of scientists have done over a hundred years that supports, you know, a fundamental theory in biology, why just negate that out of hand? Uh, either, both sides are counterproductive, I think. Um, and I think that's where this modern tension lies to, although you can go back historically and look at it in other ways as well. But there is this tendency um, to push back and forth between science and religion. With that said, I should say that the vast majority of scientists uh, do not see attention. Uh, they might not be believers, but they don't necessarily see uh, a reason to attack religious belief. And, and very many religious believers also uh, look at science as a very beneficial thing to society, not something that they need to uh, push back on or attack. Nevertheless, um, that sort of tension exists. And in modern days, of course, we're very polarized about many things, aren't we? Yeah, I, I do think that's a 
you know, I think an important observation is that that, that polarization is, is perhaps just one example of much broader polarization that exists in society. And, um, and I, I think also the point that you make is, is very important that, that the extremes do not represent what everybody thinks, of course. And, um, you know, there, well, you know, like my own perspective is that I don't personally see the need to think in terms of the existence of a deity. On the other hand, I don't think I have all the answers. So, um, it, it could be, it's there and, you know, it doesn't, I think it's counterproductive to simply say, nope, I've got the answer. I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And that's, yeah. you know, that's the, that's the arrogance, which I'm really speaking against in the book that I, anybody that says I have all the answers, uh, that's somebody that I, I mistrust. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. And, and so, so now I'm going to, I'm going to turn to a, a, another question about something that actually sort of bugged me about your book. Okay. And, and, uh, but this is, this is, I think, an important thing to kind of um, get at in this, this overall conversation. Um, and the first thing I, I want to point out is that one of the things I absolutely loved about the book is that you actually carry with you exactly the humility that you're talking about. You have an openness to perspectives in the way that you write that I think is really powerful. Um, but there was, you know, one thing that kind of bothered me is as I worked through the book and I found myself reading all these passages from the Bible. And and I'll have to admit, um, I don't like the Bible all that much. Um, I don't <laughs> a lot really of like don't. <laughs> right. I don't like the tone of it and things like that. And so I started getting kind of bothered by that part of the argument. And and I think some of it's related to the type of language that gets often used in Christianity, terms like Lord, which to me has a way of implying a kind of patriarchal power structure, or phrases like "and God said." Well, I. I, you know, from my perspective, I don't think God said anything. So, um, so I, you know, these can be kind of off-putting to non-Christians like myself and, and in a way don't seem to be very humble in the way they often get used. And again, I think in, in your book, you're very careful about that, but an issue that, that kind of, um, comes up with this is that, that this emphasis on, on their needing to be a creator, which I think is a very Abrahamic way of looking at things isn't shared by all religions. And I think you do a really great job throughout the book of, of pointing out the allegorical nature of the Bible, but couldn't you argue that the tone, the content, and the approach of the Bible is actually rather ethnocentric and thus really isn't very conducive to a conversation between, you know, religion, whatever we mean by that, and, and, um, and which is a very complex and diverse category of human behavior. Um, and science. And so uh, it seems to me um, that the book is really more trying to create a conversation between Abrahamic religions and natural science. And I, of course, I come at this because I, I study religion in Japan and, and Buddhism doesn't use concepts like these and doesn't even really have a creator deity of any kind. It has supernatural beings and in Japan it has ancestors, but there's there's no creator. So how would you broaden this discussion to include religions beyond the scope of the Abrahamic worldview, which I think in terms of the history of religions is in some ways a rather odd perspective because of its focus on monotheism and, and, and creation, where you find in, in a great many of the world's religions that there's, you know, animism and there's, there's polytheism. And, and you have a kind of language that's used in the Bible that can, you know, obviously isn't off-putting to people who 
who are you know Christians, but it can be off-putting to people in other religions or people who are non-religious. Uh, so I, I'm curious, how would you respond to that? Um, yeah, I mean, first of all, it's it is certainly a very a very fair uh, observation, a very fair critique of the work. Um, before I get into that, I would just add that there are many Christians who are also put off by the language in the Bible as well. Mm. So, um, so, so with that in mind, um, yeah, I mean, really, the I guess the best way to answer that is just um, uh, it, it's about the context under which this work kind of developed. So, mm. I teach at a Catholic university. Um, and so I teach this course, God and Modern Biology, at a Catholic university. I developed it to teach here. And so a lot of the conversations, a lot of the students that come here have that sort of Christian or Catholic background. Now, certainly not all of them. And I would hope in my class that I'm open enough to uh, a broad perspective of, of outlooks, although I don't often get them. Um, but then this course, then this 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 project that started with this course was uh, ended up going out into the Catholic communities in the Diocese of Bridgeport. Uh, the Diocese of Bridgeport helped sponsor the the grant that I eventually got uh, that funded this work. Um, and so it's really the context under which I've had these conversations. So uh, when I go out into the Catholic parishes, obviously they're talking about um, what their knowledge is, what their understanding is relative to their to the background in the Bible, um, and that's where that conversation emerged. Um, I would actually welcome the opportunity to move this conversation um, into with with other religions. Uh, perhaps with Buddhism might be a very productive way uh, to to have this conversation. Uh, I have not really talked with any Muslim scholars on this topic either. So yeah, there's there. It's an area that's ripe for exploration. Um, it's just within the context of this work. Um, that's where I was, that's where I was. So that's where it comes from. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense to me. I, I think also, you know, context is, is very powerful, of course, in many different ways. And, and, you know, one of the things that, you know, I found in, in the time that I've spent talking to people in Japan about Buddhism, uh, they, they often find the fact that Americans even have this conversation to be rather bizarre because um, <laughs> there, there isn't really a conflict in Buddhism with this. You know, Buddhism is actually kind of oriented around a causal understanding of, of, of the natural world. Um, and, you know, Japanese, at least uh, the way the, the educational system works, they just they learn Darwinian evolution in school, and that's just the way the world that's is. There's just the way really it is, a, right? Yeah, there isn't a debate, um, and so they often find it very strange that we feel like we have to set up this sort of antagonistic conflict between right. things from their perspective just aren't in conflict. Yeah, you're right. And so, so that's the other part of this question, which which just slipped my mind a moment ago, is that the Christian world is really the source of this perceived conflict between science and religion. You don't, you don't see it. Like you said, you don't see it in Buddhism. You don't see it in Judaism. Actually, you don't see it for many other religions. Um, but you do see it in the Christian world. Yeah. And I think that's, I think it's a, a very important thing for people to think about with this is that, that, you know, the, the cure, I guess, if there's a cure for this, is is really one that has to address how Christianity and natural science can figure out how to live together. Um, 
you know, of course, there are other people who have written, you know, you think about um, Capra's book, The Tao of Physics, which I never thought was all that great a book because <laughs> I didn't think it was a very good look at uh, Eastern religions. And from what I understand, many physicists didn't think it was a very good look at physics. <laughs> but, um, but it was an interesting attempt to try to, you know, show that, that these things are not necessarily in conflict. And so I, I think that was a good thing that he did with that. Um, and often when scientists go in this direction, they engage in looking at Eastern religions instead of looking at, at Western religions. And um, I actually think it's important to go the other direction and really think about, all right, how do we find this kind of common ground or any common ground between Christianity and natural science? Yeah. So I'd like to um, maybe move backwards in time a little bit and, and explore, I think, a, a, what I think is a really important theme that runs through the book. Um, that this idea of a sharp conflict between religion and science in the, in the West and in, in the Christian world is not inevitable. And you, you note um, many of the West's great scientists like Newton or Darwin were either devout believers or wrestled with questions of faith. And um, I think there's a kind of general perspective today that, that scientists are inevitably atheists. Um, and in fact, I think this is often really extended to all academics. I can't tell you how many times upon learning that I'm a professor, I've been asked by someone, you know, so, oh, you're a professor, then you must be an atheist. And I just find it intriguing that the assumption is that anyone who's an academic is, is an atheist. Now, you know, in my case, they get the answer that they expect. But in your case, um, I bet some people would be rather surprised. And so, I have a couple of questions. Uh, the first is, why do you think this assumption has become so automatic when it comes to non-academics looking at academics? And the second is, why do you think being a scientist has reinforced your religious ideas in some ways rather than simply challenging them? Um, I'm not, well, I don't know if I have a good answer for your first question, but <laughs> I, but I, I know I know our students, um, and you know this has been discussed many times between my colleagues and me um, across the university. Um, is that you know many students come to college and they have preconceived ideas, notions, whatever it is, from um, their upbringing about the way things are, um, whether it's religion, whether it's science, whether it's anything. And we've often talked um, in faculty discussions about how a part of our job, um, a part of our job as, in, as teachers is to make them a little bit uncomfortable, to make them look at their prejudices, their biases, uh, you know, their presuppositions that they bring into a field and make them question that. And I think that students, um, they don't always like that. I mean, eventually, I believe by the time they're graduating seniors, they may have learned that that is really um, a good way to become engaged in a, in a topic um, and to uh, challenge themselves and become educated. But at least initially, I think they resist that a little bit. And maybe, maybe that's where a little bit of that comes from. Um, um, I'm, not, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Uh, why did you think being a scientist you know, how has it reinforced your religious ideas? Because that's an interesting, you know, thought oh, okay, when, okay, when yeah. so many people come at this assuming science is going to challenge it. But in reading the book, one of the feelings I really got was that it, in many ways, I mean, you have a lot of nice moments where, you know, you talk about as a child, I think, being on the beach and, and looking at the world and thinking this is fascinating. 
and your your interest in the world um, has actually led you from, as I understand the book, to actually have your faith reinforced. And so I think that's a really interesting thing that I'd like to you know have you talk about. Okay, thank you, thank you. Um, so um, yeah. So I've always been a scientist ever since I was a young kid, you know, engaged in, you know, many different things, collecting rocks with my best friend down the street, um, going to the shoreline, just observing the world. I've always been a scientist. Um, And I've always also, um, you know, just struck with the beauty of the world, struck with a, you know, a coastline at sunset or, you know, a a flower, a a field of wildflowers with bees moving through them. I've always been struck with a sense of awe and wonder about that. Um, and of course, many people are, whether they're a believer or not believer. But to me, um, to me, underlying that sense of awe or wonder, which I have about the natural world, there's always been, um, to me, a, deep, a deep-seated sense of gratitude, um, of thankfulness. And I think for me anyway, it's in that feeling of gratitude that a lot of my religious convictions flow. Um, and so when you're grateful, you're grateful to someone or something. And so, um, that's where, that's where it sort of flows outward, um, and intersects to me, uh, with my religious beliefs. I don't know if that makes sense. (laughs) Actually, it, it makes enormous sense to me. Um, and, and I, as you were describing that, I thought, you know, this is actually a point where one might really find contact with with non-Western religions like Japanese Buddhism, because gratitude is at the core of of what people do um, in in Japanese Buddhism. The, aside from the sort of the philosophical, the, the practice of Buddhism in Japan is really about memorializing your ancestors, and that's all about gratitude. It, it's all about you know having a sense of appreciation for the fact that the people that came before you brought you into the world, that you're here because of them and because of this ongoing cycle of life. Um, and so that actually, I think, could be a very interesting place to kind of explore where we might find yeah, more points of sure. contact. Certainly. Because you know, it's, it's, it's really addressing the same thing. It's saying, right. you know, look at the world. This is amazing. You know, right. Thank you. That's, that's <laughs> for, a, exactly. So that's yeah. that, that's and that's my that's my deepest sense. I mean, that's really my deepest sense. Yeah. Now that that's actually it really helps me to understand how you kind of got to where you got in the book. And um, I thought, you know, you um, you raise a lot of different, uh, a lot of really interesting topics. You you cover, you know, there are various um, you know philosophers and and scientists and others that float around. Theologians. There's Saint Augustine. There's Thomas Kuhn and and of course, there's you know Stephen Hawking, and um, I thought your discussion about the the intersection between a, a theory of everything among you know scientists like Hawking, and then the Christian mystical notion of an interconnected universe uh, with a creator deity to be quite intriguing. And you know, in Buddhism, as I've said, there's there's no need for a, a creator deity, but there is very much a sense of an interconnected world that that's very much how buddhism puts the world together from a philosophical perspective and i found myself you know thinking that really deep exploration of of this topic seems like one place where uh, a discourse that includes multiple religious and scientific perspectives might you know be fruitful and uh, i was i wondering if you could talk a bit about how you perceive this interconnectedness in relation to finding common ground between religion and science 
Um, yeah, what, what immediately springs to mind um, when you bring up this question is there's um, a, there's a, uh, a neuroscientist um, whose name is Andrew Newberg. He was for many years at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, I think he's now at Jefferson University in Philadelphia. Um, but he has done, um, he's a neuroscientist, so he, he measures brain activities. And he did this with um, a various, various groups of people who were engaged in meditation or prayer of some sort within their own religious tradition. And so he looked at the, he looked at the brain patterns, the electrical tracings of brain activity. Uh, for example, um, when Buddhist monks were, were praying, were meditating and and when uh, when nuns were, when Catholic nuns were engaged in their prayer practices, and he found a lot of similarities between the overall brain activities of the two groups of people, um, and he's also extended that outward uh, to uh, to um, for example to when when um, when people who identify as atheists are meditating again mm. sim similar sort of patterns of the brain, um, and now. And then he looked at the reports, what the people that were engaged in these activities reported, um, and, and their experiences were very much about within their own religious tradition. Um, and so that's really very interesting. I'm, I'm not a neuroscientist, so I can't begin to analyze that. But there is sort of those, uh, we, whatever our religious tradition, or, or if we don't have a religious tradition, um, there are certain things that are physiologically similar about all of us when we're engaged in certain activities. And to me, that maybe provides an avenue for further conversation or exploration. Um, the other thing is, um, right now, <laughs> right now we're, you know, we're in this global pandemic. Um, there's certainly, um, there's certainly ample space for conversations between scientific medical communities, um, as well as faith communities whose, 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 uh, thoughts should be, um, you know, care, compassion for those people that are suffering from this pandemic. Now, uh, unfortunately this has become so highly politicized, at least in our country that, you know, we're, we're really spinning our wheels in addressing this pandemic. Um, but if we sort of step back, and really look at what our priorities really should be, um, I think that poses an avenue um, for addressing that. Now, hopefully this pandemic doesn't last that long, but going beyond, say we get over this um, in, a, in six months or a year, it's, it's in the rear view mirror. Um, we also have the, uh, the perplex perplexing problems of global climate change, um, and not just climate change, but just global disruption in many, many different ways. And uh, a few years ago, um, Pope Francis um, put out his encyclical, Laudato Si, um, about these issues. And he's certainly coming, he bases all of his arguments in that book from his very fundamental um, Catholic uh, theological understanding of the world and the way the world should be, but he's also open to discussion from the scientific community uh, because the scientific community is who's providing the evidence, who's providing um, what's happening to the world and possibly uh, what might be a what we might be able to do to address that. 
Um, I think that, um, you know, so, so that vehicle uh, that Laudato Si has provided, I think is very fertile. Um, and many of my scientific friends, many of whom are, are non-believers, um, they use that, they use that encyclical in their class, uh, in their mm -hmm. classes about climate change. So I think there is places where religious communities and scientific communities can certain, can certain find, certainly find common ground, um, in, in these sorts of areas, because again, um, Laudato Si is all about interconnectedness. It's not just the interconnectedness of human populations. It's the human, the interconnectedness of all species and the natural environment itself. We're all interdependent on each other. Um, and I think that provides fertile ground for future conversation. Yeah, I, I noticed in the book that you mentioned St. Francis of Assisi, I think several times and, and, you know, a perspective on the world that, that, sees us as being having things in common with the rest of uh life rather than you know being somehow this special thing that's different from everything else i think um this is actually to me always been one of the powerful things in buddhism is that you know, humans are a little bit special in the sense that they they happen to you know live in the uh cycle of birth and rebirth in a, in a spot that allows them to be aware that the cycle exists and so but that awareness is very tied to also being aware to aware of the interconnectedness of everything. And, and I think that's a, that might be a really powerful point of contact um, that, you know, there, there isn't much to disagree on about, right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, whether it's in biology or whether it's, you know, in, in Christianity or in Buddhism, I, I think, you know, certainly there are areas that might disagree on that, but overall, I think there's a, a fairly widespread understanding that we live in a world where everything is tied together. And if we don't kind of realize that pretty soon, we're going to be in really big trouble. Exactly. We are. Yeah. I mean, um, yeah. yeah, we're not. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I, I think that's a, that, that, that theme really runs through the book. And I think it's, it's just a really important observation because there isn't something to debate on that, you know, that's exactly. being observed <laughs> by lots of different people from different perspectives. Right. Um, right. So where do we move you know, from and, here? Yeah, exactly. And, and I think that's where we should be going is asking, all right, so we all agree on that. Maybe that's our starting point. Um, yeah. I, one of the things that, uh, another idea that really permeates the discussion is you kind of, um, at different points in the book, um, you either allude to or directly comment on the role of education in shaping how people see their world. And of course, you know, we're both educators, so I, I think this is probably something that is on our minds on a regular basis. And uh, you, you noted the influence of graduate education in shaping how scientists generate a worldview that shapes their response to non-scientific viewpoints. And then later in the book, you note the uh, not inconsiderable negative influence that creationism has had on science education. And I, I'd like you to really elaborate on this a bit for the listeners, because I, I really think this is actually, there are a lot of good things in this book, but this is a really powerful point because I think it gets at this kind of underlying structure that is in some ways generating this dichotomy. And so, you know, I'd, I'd really like you to uh, talk a bit more about that. Yeah. Um, in terms of uh, yeah, the education process itself in this country, um, 
I believe, you know, and I don't want to really, I don't want to overstate this because I think um, generally our education system is very, very good. Um, but we tend to, I think, our, we tend, in, in my opinion, we tend to over-specialize, so to speak. Um, we come into college um, or, you know, the university and we seek to major in biology or sociology or English. Um, and, you know, because that's where our passion lies and that's wonderful. And so the universities trained us very well in that, but, but more often than not, I believe, um, we often do that to the exclusion of many other topical areas. Um, if you look back at the historical origins of the, of American education, I mean, it's really sort of rooted in the universities of, of medieval, medieval Europe. Um, and, you know, students were basically required to undergo a broad training in a variety of different disciplines before they went on to specialize. And that's not that's not so much um, what goes on anymore um, in this country. Um, now we do. I mean, in my own particular case, um, I think I got a terrific undergraduate education. But I didn't have to take any philosophy classes. I didn't take any religious studies classes. Um, I didn't take any English literature classes. You know, so really those things were, um, you know, really those things were remote for me. Um, I got a great, I got a great background in biology and chemistry and geology um, and all those great things, which I loved, but not so much the humanities. Um, and then when you go on to graduate school, um, again, obviously it's more specialization. You're doing research in the, in the, in a field of, in a field of science or, or in a field of sociology that you've entered into. And so, you know, you're really very focused on that. And so after, at the end of all this, when you come out of it, um, you really, um, you really don't even have the language, so to speak, to talk with colleagues on the other side of campus. Um, should you happen to run into them now, you know, many liberal arts universities, um, try to maintain that sort of what we call a core curriculum, um, here at my university, um, where you get different classes in a variety of different disciplines, but still, um, to my mind, we often don't really integrate those across the disciplines Like, for example, in my biology class, my biochemistry class, which I teach every year, I'm not asking students to relate what they learned in my class to something they might have learned in a religious studies class or a history class. Um, because, you know, essentially, first of all, there's not a lot of time for that because we have to get through the curriculum that we're doing. Um, but secondly, um, a lot of times we don't have the language to engage in those conversations because of our discipline training. Now, even at a liberal arts university, there are professional schools frequently and they have accreditation requirements. So that even that oftentimes squeezes the, uh, the so-called core curriculum, uh, to the exclusion of still other courses. So I think that hyper-specialization is, is part of the question. Um, on the other side of things, um, people from religious communities that may have not gotten, 
uh, beyond four years of college or maybe have not gotten four years of college, so have not really engaged with people that talk other, even though we're speaking English, uh, they really talk different languages. And so there's this way, uh, there's reluctance to engage um, in these conversations. I mean, I know for myself, when I first started into this discussion of science and religion, and I started talking to my colleagues um, in philosophy, in religious studies, um, in history, uh, really how unprepared I was to really engage with them. I mean, and it's only after many, many years of conversation, uh, many, many uh, participation in seminars and whatnot, where we really make an effort to break down those barriers, uh, to be honest, that I have the confidence to write a book like this. Yeah, the, the barriers are, you know, they're really problematic. I mean, as, as you, you know, point out, just the, the lingo that we use, the way that we talk is different. And um, when you get into this, you know, high level of specialization, then you get high levels of jargon um, that actually make it very hard to communicate, you know, sometimes even just across, say, social science and humanities uh, disciplines, people are just using different terms. And so uh, sometimes they're using different terms that basically mean the same thing, uh, <laughs> but it, it, it makes it very difficult to, to have this conversation. And I think not only does you know, I think it's unfortunate. I think also kind of, uh, to use your, your book's title to find points of contact actually makes us better at what we do in our own discipline. Um, I, I grew up in a household of musicians. My father's a retired music professor. And so I'm a musician and I am amazed at times how much thinking about music has affected the way I function as an anthropologist and think about culture and think about behavior. Uh, that's not a connection that necessarily would automatically pop up, but I've found you know, many ways that there, there are overlaps, or at least that the way that music operates helps to illuminate the way I think about culture operates, for example. So I think there's much to be said for you know what we get from these other fields, if we can get that discourse going. And you know, the, the sense I get is that engaging with philosophers and, and religious studies faculty and this kind of thing has... How has it affected the way you look at biology? Um, well, really, I mean, it just, it makes, it makes me more open. So it's openness to ideas, openness to thoughts, openness to different perspectives, I think is the valuable thing. Um, so I think that's, yeah, it's just, it's just that sense of openness, um, and so if we sort of turn things around a bit, why isn't that openness there sometimes when, you know, the extremists in both camps, if you will, uh, really though, they don't really engage with each other. They sort of engage at each other. Um, so why isn't that openness there when we try to, when we try to be that way in, within our own disciplines and interacting with our colleagues across campus? Yeah. And of course, you know, campuses get to be big places and we mm -hmm. all live in our little in yeah, the corner of the campus, and we don't interact. And uh, yeah, of that. course, yeah, it's a, uh, yeah, it's a, uh, it's it's um, yeah. I mean, we have it here on my campus, which is a rather small school, uh, but still, you know, the sciences are in one building, the humanities are in another building, the social sciences are sort of mixed across the two buildings. So, um, yeah, it's very, it's very easy to get uh, insulated from other ideas. Yeah, it's a kind of ongoing process that keeps reproducing itself and which actually 
makes it even more difficult over time to have those conversations. So I, I think it's amazing the way you've, you've reached out and tried to, you know, engage in that other perspective and, and um, those other perspectives. And so, thank you. So, yeah, I, you know, I find points of contact to be a, a, a really, you know, wonderfully helpful entry into the literature on science and, and religion. And I, I want to really thank you for the efforts and, you know, trying to find common ground because this is where I think we should be going. Um, we, we need to look for those those places where we can have a conversation so that we can, uh, I think two things. One is that we can try to understand other perspectives and also we can stop trivializing other perspectives. Um, and obviously, as you know, we've talked about, this is difficult to do in our current political and intellectual climate. Um, it's a hard topic to dive into. And so I think it's a really important book. And, and so kind of as we you know move towards the end of our conversation, I want to ask, is there you know anything else I we haven't covered that you'd like to raise that I, you'd like our listeners to think about? Yeah, I'm you know what what comes to mind um when we're thinking sort of about the big picture, um, I remember a, a, uh, a men's retreat that I was on, you know, quite a few years ago now, and it was, it was rooted in, uh, Native American spirituality. And one of the exercises we did was something called the medicine wheel. Um, and in, in Native American tradition, um, what the medicine wheel is, is, um, the idea that everybody's sort of born into this world with their own sort of innate tendencies, talents, gifts, whatever you might call it. Um, and they, and there are a number of different types. Now, of course, there's a lot of different personality type exercises out there, but in this particular one, um, we're born at different places around the wheel and uh, the native Americans identify the different places as the four directions, north, south, east, and west. And people from the north have certain characteristics. People from the east have different characteristics and so forth. Um, and so the first goal, if you will, the first quest is to really discover yourself and where you are on that wheel. And then your responsibility really as you move through your life is to move around that wheel um, and encounter other people and recognize that everybody around that wheel is your teacher. So we are all teachers for each other. And so um, with that in mind, as I think about my book, um, there's a number of recent science books out there, which are so-called big histories, where they sort of start like I do um, with the Big Bang and they move through to the evolution of humankind. Um, and so and they engage that scientifically. And I do that as well to some extent in my book. Um, but I'm also interested in um, the the scientists who came up with these ideas, who the scientists who proposed these thoughts. And so a little bit of their history and to understand their history, you have to understand the context of the society, which within which they lived. Um, and then um, try to reflect from our perspective today, back on some of these uh, different ideas that have come up in, you know, certainly Western science over the past couple of hundred years or so. Um, and in that way, you know, the people of the past, the people of the present all become teachers for us. And I think if we have that sort of uh, more open view that everybody can be a teacher for everybody else, uh, perhaps some of these uh, walls or barriers start to break down. At least that's my hope. <laughs> uh, I, I think that's a, a really, um, it's, it's a really beautiful way to think about things. And it, and it in fact, 
completely captures this notion and this centrality of humility. Um, if we see ourselves as learners and other people as teachers, instead of, I think, what, you know, frankly happens an awful lot right now, we see ourselves as teachers and everybody else should be learners and they should be paying attention to us. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, we're, we're almost automatically placed into a position of humility because we, we have to pay attention to how other people see things. And, um, you know, this is actually, it's a topic that I, I, I deal with quite a lot. I teach ethnographic research methods. And, and to me, the, the way to be a good anthropologist is to be a student. You go to another place and let, let people teach you their world right. and, and try yeah. to understand that. And I think if we all really do that, you know, an awful lot of these conflicts become interesting, intriguing, worth talking about, but not debilitating. They, they stop being, you know, things that just prevent us from interacting. And so I, that's a that's a really beautiful way to think about this. Thank you for that. Right. Thank you. Thanks. So um, what's up next? Uh, you, you know, could you talk about what your, you know, if what your current research is? Uh, are you going to continue this um topic of looking at science and religion, or are you, you going to go back to the lab? I'm, I'm curious what, you know, I, I, I guess now you're, you found your way to the uh, laboratory of admin work um, as an associate dean. But, exactly. Uh, yeah. so, so what's on the horizon? So I still have some projects in my, in my lab to clean up uh, with, um, although both the administrative work I'm doing um, as well as the pandemic really sort of interferes with a lot of that work. Um, I've really sort of shifted for now anyway, my, uh, my work into this area of science and religion. Um, in terms of what is next, um, I ended my, I, I ended the book. Um, I think one of the last lines in the book, or maybe it's the last line in the book, um, is something that, uh, John Paul II said. And he, when he said this, he was talking about specifically, uh, he was talking specifically about the science of evolution. Um, and he concluded his statements on that with uh, truth cannot, the truth cannot contradict the truth. So truth cannot contradict truth. Um, and so that is a rather perplexing statement. I've been told by many of my colleagues, especially some of my philosophy <laughs> colleagues, um, mm -hmm. you know, how, what is truth? How do you define truth? So, um, you know, uh, what is truth? I mean, that's a famous line from uh, Pontius Pilate uh, during the, the during the uh, crucifixion of, of, of Christ. Um, so I thought perhaps um, that that might be some place where I start spending some time thinking about and developing, um, looking at the truth from a variety of perspectives, um, looking at the truth from a scientific perspective, from a religious perspective, and perhaps this might be um, a vehicle for me to expand beyond the Abrahamic religions, uh, like you pointed out earlier, um, and to include Buddhism and some of the other religious, uh, religious traditions that we have in our world, because it is a very rich world when it comes to religion. Um, and so I'd like to tap mm -hmm. into some of those as well. Yeah, that's... I think that's a very interesting, you know, way to look at it, and and it's I think it's a very rich world when it comes to how how we think about the nature of truth and and define what constitutes truth. I uh, when I'm teaching, you know, research methods, one of the things I tell my students is that you know science in many ways isn't a quest for truth; it's a process of falsification. It's a a way in which we we challenge sort of the limits of the things that we think are true. Um, 
and and that's a different way of thinking about the nature of of truth and and that I think that's another you know point of contact as it were that that you know how do we there's so many different ways to approach that single concept um that I think it would be a very interesting thing to pursue well i i I look forward to that book. Um, <laughs> I, I'm guessing with your admin duties, it may be a little while before well, it'll, it's it'll on the show. It'll be a little while, but I'm, I'm, you know, I'm batting around ideas. Um, of course, you know, the, the, the pandemic has everybody struggling, um, yeah. and, uh, adapting, adapting on a really a daily basis. Um, and so we're all struggling with that. Uh, the faculty are struggling to adapt their classes to their students. Um, the students are struggling to adapt their learning environment. So um, it's an ongoing struggle. So um, I will get back to this, um, and and um, I'm looking forward to doing that. Well, I, I think uh, anyone who reads your book, I, I think, will be looking forward to the the, the next uh, the next thing that you produce. And and I really want to thank you again for taking the time to join me on the Science, Technology, and Society channel of the New Books Network. Um, it's really been a pleasure having this conversation. I, I think uh, I've learned a great deal and, and um, I learned a lot from the book and, and I'm just, you know, really want to thank you for uh, publishing such an important contribution to this discourse. Well, thank you, John. Thank you for your kind words. I've really enjoyed the conversation. Um, and I will look forward to perhaps one day having another one. <laughs> I, I hope so. <laughs> All right. Thanks very much. Okay. Take care.